Hi there, a quick note before the episode begins. Did you know that Mija has her own audiobook with exclusive and brand new material? It's called Mija Podcast, the audiobook, an exclusive and never-before-heard collection of memoirs and reflections by her creator, Lori Martinez, about what it meant to turn her own migration story into a fiction series. When you get Ochenta's audiobooks, you're directly supporting our independent audio series productions. You can find it on Libro.fm, Apple Books, Google Play, Storytel, BookBeat, and on your favorite audiobooks app. Also available in Spanish and French. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Bienvenidos and welcome to Mija on the Mic, where me, Mija, interviews daughters of immigrants who are making moves in their industries around the world. Today, I'm so excited to invite the communicator, facilitator, and social entrepreneur, Liz Alarcón. Thank you so much for joining me, Liz. Hola, hola. Thank you for having me. So... Mija is a show where we share immigrant stories through fiction and highlight the nuances that affect all members in a family. So I'd love to start off and hear your immigration story, your family's journey to get started. Well, it started way before I was born, the story of so many of us. My dad was born in Spain, emigrated to Venezuela with his family when the Franco dictatorship was happening in the uh, 30s and 40s. And so like so many other uh, European families, they found a home in Venezuela and he stayed there and eventually met my mom. He was 20 years older than her. And my mom had big dreams, born and raised in Venezuela to a black Venezuelan father and um, a white a Venezuelan mother. And you can see already all of the, the racial immigration and uh, generational tensions there, right? Uh, a Spaniard, much older than her, coming into a family, uh, Spanish folks um, in that time period were not foreign to racism. So you can imagine all of those conflicts in my family. But again, my dad had big dreams. Mom did as well. And my dad had studied here in the U.S. He went to college here and worked at a multinational company. And my mom had always had her sights set on going to college here in the U.S. And so love and ambition brought them to California in the late 80s. My mom went to college there. And the plan, Mia, was to go back. It was always to move back to Venezuela. So for those who are not familiar with politics in the region or uh, the Venezuela before the Venezuela you're hearing in the news now. It was a very wealthy country, uh, very economically prosperous. Again, many immigrants from around the world found home in Venezuela. And so why would you stay in the United States? But they were prospering here. Things were going well. And then I came along in 1989 and the United States became home. And so the immigration story really came from 
from a, a vision of possibility and a desire to explore other parts of the world and, and see yourself uh, beyond uh, that comfort that um, my dad had found in Venezuela that my mom had with my family there. And we're still now here. And that is very different, you know, from the contrast of the the stories that you're hearing of so many Venezuelans who have had to leave uh, in the last uh, several decades. Um, the crisis right now in Venezuela has caused the largest migration of any country in the Western Hemisphere, where more than 7 million Venezuelans have left in the last 20 years. And so I sit with the contrast of how my family came here and how so many other Venezuelans are coming now. That's really interesting to hear because you have all of the the layers of history within your family for the immigration journeys. And I definitely sympathize with the Venezuela and being wealthy before because I'm from Colombia. So we had family members who immigrated to Venezuela when Colombia was doing not so well. Now it's backwards. Now they're all going to Colombia. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So it's, it's super interesting. And I, I'm curious, you know, how did all of those values, the, that kind of journey and the trauma of it, Um, how did it affect you growing up? You know, were you taught Spanish growing up? All of these questions that we have, um, everyone's experience of the language and culture of their parents is different. So I would love to hear, you know, how that incorporated into your childhood. Oh my gosh. Tanta tela que cortar. You know, as, as I was mentioning, my, my father was Venezuelan by his upbringing, but he still had a lot of uh, this very strict Spanish uh, way of looking at the world uh, that definitely manifested through Spanish itself. And so growing up, I was expected to speak Castellano very properly. Um, there was high levels of discipline in my home to make sure that I was fully bilingual And it was harsh. I remember uh, coming home from school. I didn't learn English at home, even though both my parents spoke English because they wanted me to preserve the language. And when I would speak in English, neither of my parents would respond. And I remember feeling so desperate y malcriada and frustrated, but it worked. It worked. And uh, I fully uh, speak Spanish, read it and write it because of that discipline coming from my dad, but also uh, from my mom's side. My grandma grew up with me. She would come quite often to visit in California. And then later when we relocated to South Florida and she was a preschool teacher. So what a privilege to have la pedagogía de mi abuela teach me Spanish and reinforce the strictness of my dad and my mom through actual practice. And so I remember coming home from school with my chips and salsa for snack, watching Barney and my grandma uh, teaching me the alphabet. So I was very privileged and very lucky to have had parents who who really uh, enforced that and had a village helping me make sure that I spoke Spanish at home. But then also I would go back to Venezuela often. I spent every single month of every single summer until I was 15 in Venezuela with my family. And that also helped uh, that bicultural feeling that I still carry with me today. And so again, in, in the 90s, Venezuela was amazing. You know, it was a place to go and explore. There was a point Mija, where I knew more about Venezuela and the geography of the country than I did about the United States because we would then go as a family for Christmas. So I really grew up a fourth of my year in Venezuela in my childhood. And that to me was was invaluable. And so you mix the discipline at home with the traveling back often and then the move to South Florida, eh, which is another migration in and of itself, right? If, for those who they can picture Miami, It, yes, is very 
uh, diverse and there's a lot of Latinos, but not in 1996. We were just starting to move here. There wasn't a large Venezuelan community, but there were many more Venezuelans than in California. So coming to South Florida also reignited what I was living with my travels to Venezuela and back home because there were just many more South Americans, many more Caribbeans in my uh, environment and my upbringing, contrasting to uh, the mostly Mexican environment that I was in when I was growing up in California. So you have migration, you have bi-continental upbringing, discipline, but again, overall, very privileged that my parents um and my grandmother were so deeply involved. And then my extended family really helped me keep the the saying that I have now, which is that I'm as American as apple pie y tan venezolana como la arepa. <laughs> me encanta. Um, so tell me about um, how that inspired your work, because I know you have Pulso Podcast and also, you know, you're doing a lot of other work within the community. How did you get to this part of your career? What inspired you to really focus on this community in particular, of course. So the other missing piece of the puzzle, which I haven't talked about yet, but essential to to explain why I do what I do is my mom. So I told you all that she went to college here in the U.S., but I didn't share that she was a journalist and a communicator herself. And she started her career at the local news station at Univision in California, San Jose to be specific, right after college. And she was one of the first uh, darker skinned South American folks to break it into a mostly a white Latino space, mostly Mexican space uh, back then. And it was similar here when we moved to South Florida. But she came because El Nuevo Herald, uh, the local Spanish news station, uh, hired her. So we made the move. And she became a columnist for the paper and worked in Univision and Telemundo, really working for our community. And so her working in Spanish and working for Nuestra Gente was a huge influence for me. I know I, I brought my dad into part of the story, but eventually my mom became a single mom after my parents got divorced. My dad kind of went astray and, and we lost contact. And so I was there with my mom every day in the newsroom. And uh, that really gave me a front row seat to the stories about our community and made me interested in the political work that I'm doing as well. In my home, there was always talk about politics, about Venezuela. When the situation started to get critical, we stopped going. So, of course, I was curious as to why. Um, and then I just, yeah, just knew that I, I wanted to keep learning about our Gente, and I went off to study politics thinking that I was going to be a diplomat one day, maybe the U.S. ambassador to Venezuela. And uh, then my mom passed away. So I was in my early 20s when this happened. I was in D.C. in grad school, again, thinking I was going to follow the political route. But something told me that her work was not just yet finished. You know, she had such a huge career ahead of her. She had broken so many barriers and I felt like I, I wanted to come back to those journalistic communicator roots of me in the newsroom and wanted to continue her legacy in many ways. And so I spent several years thinking, how do I mix my path in politics and the studies that I did with this journalistic upbringing that I had? And then add the ingredient of the 2016 campaign. And when I saw um, the, the campaign of our former president start with the phrase that Mexicans are rapists, I couldn't believe it. And that struck such a deep chord 
because I knew that our community was so much more than that. I grew up with the front row stories of Mexican-Americans in San Jose literally being pioneers and leading the charge. And then here in South Florida. So I told friends and family, hey, it's time to marry my my work in politics and communications and keep my mom's legacy to work for Nuestra Gente. And that's how the founding of Pulso came to be in 2018. It's been now five years of us sharing history, culture, and commentary that you won't find anywhere else, sharing the stories of Latino contributions through the Pulso podcast and on our Instagram. If you go to TikTok, you'll find us too. We have a history newsletter and it really comes from that love of how I grew up, again, that front row seat to our stories and wanting to combat these negative stereotypes that the highest level of politics is still perpetuating about Nuestra Gente. Speaking of which, since you started it during the Trump era, you know, how has the project evolved? Um, imagine that you're now changing the priorities, maybe, as things are kind of moving out of that that harsh, harsh era. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we were at the height of the of the work of Pulso um, with so many converging moments happening in in our own U.S. history a dangerous uh, narrative about Nuestra Gente through the Trump campaign, but also a pandemic, which we know Latinos were deeply affected and on the front lines of a racial uprising, right? The Black Lives Matter movement was all happening all at the same time. It was such an intense period, that 2020 space. And then again, another election cycle. So there were so many needs that we wanted to be serving through Pulso Mija, including combating misinformation and disinformation, which we know Latinos were deeply targeted by. And so a lot of our work then was uh, sharing the news for Nuestra Gente, centering our people in ways that were, again, beyond the stereotypes or the alarmist uh, rhetoric that we were sometimes hearing in, in mainstream media. Now pivot to 2023, the need and the desire for news has died a bit. Not that the news is not important. I come from a journalist background and I, I value the truth above all things. But for our audience in particular, because we were never a breaking news space, there was fatigue on just information and facts and figures that were sometimes daunting. And so um, we had been doing history content all throughout, even through the pandemic, but we have shifted away from covering the news. So if you go to Pulso now, you're not really going to see much news at all, but you are going to see commentary. And we don't have enough Latinos commenting on the happenings of the day, the issues that we're facing from our lens. And so uh, now that's what we do when we find either an issue or a story that is relevant to Nuestra Gente. That's kind of how we keep the current events angle or pillar of the work that we do at Pulso. But you're going to see much more cultural content, cultural content that resonates where you you feel like, yo también, mi mamá también hacía eso. I, I see myself in, in that story. And so you'll see a lot of that. And we've partnered with content creators and influencers. So you'll see their faces on our platforms. And of course, history, right? The history that we didn't learn in school, the history that we weren't taught with all of the book banning. It's literally banned book week right now as we're conversing um and we know that our stories are are being halted and so latino history has now become even more important in the work that we do because we recognize how important the latino community is we're 20 percent of the population we have been here since before the border crossed us for many latinos and it's 
appalling that we don't know enough about our contributions. And so we've ramped up the history, included commentary, and added more culture content since the founding of the organization. Well, yeah, since 2018. Wow, I can't believe it's been five years. So what does your family think of all of this work that you've been doing? Mi familia no tiene ni idea. They think I work for the Democratic Party. My grandma, <laughs> when I call her, she asks me, ¿Cómo está Biden? And I'm like, Grandma. <laughs> I am very fortunate to sometimes get to go to to things at the White House because I'm also very active in local Florida politics. And, you know, Latinos are, are more center stage in this administration than ever before. But I do not work for the Democrats. <laughs> and often my family doesn't really know what I do. But when I sit down and explain and show them the pictures of the Pulso team, which we're now 12, and I show them the content or I share something from Instagram or or they hear me talk about it, they're they're really proud, um, they're really supportive, and they are starting to understand themselves the impact of the Latino community uh, here in the United States. You know, most of my family is still not in this country or are still in Venezuela as well or have emigrated to other places um, because of the political and economic situation there. So yeah, it's always funny to try to explain what I do when they see a picture of me doing something or other that they assume is all political and when again when I explain it when they see it they're they're really proud did they know what a podcast was no but when <laughs> they see this setup that I have here speaking to you all from my closet and they come over and stay over y les muestro de aquí grabo el podcast de pulso or I share them uh the the Apple podcast link and they hear it and they see that it actually just pops up easy. They're like, ah, tienes un programa de audio, que chévere. <laughs> and it eventually, eventually lands and my younger family members, cousins, and even my uncles and aunts, I make them subscribe and I show them how to access it. So I'm curious because obviously you came up during a time when Latinos were being criticized a lot in the States and now you're, you know, you have this thriving company. What were some of the challenges that you faced over the years? Oh, my goodness. Being a Latina founder it puts you in the smallest of percentages. We're so few. Um, and I am very fortunate to straddle worlds where we are a media outlet, but we're a nonprofit media outlet. So we operate as a nonprofit, but we are a startup now leaving the startup phase. And so that gives me access to um, resources and grants and the more traditional nonprofit space that actually gives you a roadmap uh, more so than if I were a small business owner um, without a roadmap, which is often uh, the case for so many other uh, founders or business owners or entrepreneurs. So um, I think that the fact that I I'm also within a media incubator and the challenges have been mitigated because I have had resources and, and templates and and spaces to help also become what we are today. But that still doesn't take away that I am often uh, the only uh, brown, curly haired Latina in spaces where I am fundraising for the work that we're doing. And I still have to navigate being underfunded and getting a very small piece of the pie that a lot of other white founders, a lot of other white women founders, a lot of other uh, white people in media are accessing that we just don't have access to or not giving the same the same benefit of the doubt. Um, I think it's also uh, been hard that we have many 
uh, fewer chances to fail. And failure is a big part of entrepreneurship. But I make one mistake and it feels like a groundbreaking loss for us sometimes. There's a lot of fear of losing funding or of losing credibility or of being canceled or criticized by by everyone in the space because I am a, a woman of color at the helm. And so I am often judged and treated much more harshly, even by people in our own space. We have a lot of internalized negative expectations uh, of our own leadership. And so sometimes it even has come from Latinos themselves. And it's been it's been hard, you know, to to have to feel like to excel. I have to be 10 times as better as someone who is not a Latina. And I think some of the other challenges we have with with this work is just that creating content and a space for Latinos is hard in and of itself. We come from 20 different backgrounds. Uh, we have different immigration stories. We have different customs and different relationships with the U.S. And that is complex. And I love it. I have the best job in the world. But it is a, a deep honor, privilege, and challenge to represent for all Latinos, understanding that I am not the experience of all Latinos and that our experiences are different. So I think that's just a, a challenge in and of itself of the work that we're doing. Um, the final challenge I'll say is that I do not come from a family of entrepreneurs. I come from a family of media. Uh, but doing this work, again, even with the roadmap and the assistance and the template is hard when you've never done it before and you don't have that, um, I guess, culture of of entrepreneurship that many other folks who start their own thing do come from. So I know that was a lot of challenges. It's been fantastic as well, but I love keeping it real uh, about what we're facing because it's it's not easy. Yeah, I think that we almost forget to tell ourselves, wow, but you did that all by yourself. You did that. You you had no one behind you. So it's one of those things where you have to I guess give yourself credit constantly because otherwise you're you know you're in you're in it and you're dealing with all of these things where you're the only woman in the room you're the only latina in the room you're you're taking up that space and it can be hard because you feel isolated and i've i've definitely felt that and so it's really inspiring to hear stories like yours because you know you're not the only one we're out here we're out here <laughs> and we're out here and we're successful and that's amazing and i'm, I'm you know i commend you for that I do want to talk about some of the, the positive points, though. I heard an interview that you did uh, talking about the history of Pulso, and you were talking about using me Facebook Messenger to do community building. And I thought that was so interesting because it just reminded me of the power of the WhatsApp group. We use WhatsApp groups a lot over here for our um, communications at Ochenta. So I would love to, you know, tell me about that. Tell me what inspired it and how, how it's kind of helped you communicate. Oh my gosh, so many successes. You know, anytime you hear people say Latinos don't vote, you're like, actually, I know about this media outlet, Pulso, who would beg to differ. Um, this was an innovation uh, that Accelerate Change, the media incubator that we're a part of, came up with to help other outlets like Pulso, including Push Black, Serving the Black Community, Parents Together for Parents, and Noticias para Inmigrantes, uh, giving tips for uh, immigrant families. I recommend you all follow all of them. But Pulso, uh, through our work engaging the Latino community, also adopted a Facebook Messenger as a place to organize our community, right? That place where you're usually talking with your tia or uh, writing to your long lost friend from high school. You don't expect it to be a place where uh, someone is going to ask you, hey, are you registered to vote? 
If you're not, here's a link for you to do it. Or for someone to say, hey, are you voting on the election next Tuesday? Let me help you make a plan. Are you going in the morning? Are you taking two friends with you? Share this message with your friends. Um, or someone to ask you, hey, tell five of your friends that you're voting so that they can go with you. So all of these things is what we call in the wonky world of civic engagement, vote planning, which we know is highly effective to get you to actually go, friends and family organizing, which we know, again, when you get these messages from Pulso, we're just telling you to tell your friends. We're not telling you Pulso says go vote because the more you tell your people in your community to do a thing, the more they will be likely to do it. You know, we're our own influencers in our own community. And so the model for Pulso is to help you tell your friends and family what you're doing so you get excited. And so these messages in Facebook Messenger would have your face, Miha, telling your best friend, hey, Miha's voting. Come with me, right? It's not Pulso says go out and vote. Um, and so helping you help your family and friends or helping you put a frame on your Facebook page that says I'm voting or a post on your feed that says I'm voting, like that positive peer pressure, that positive influence with your friends has been our model to to get folks out and participating. And since the 2018 elections, we have registered over 12,000 Latinos straight from their phone, where we're spending most of our time. And we've helped thousands of people request a vote by mail ballot, also from, from Facebook Messenger and from their phone, and helped hundreds of thousands of Latinos actually participate in the elections who would not have otherwise done so were it not from these messages that Pulso helped others share with their family and friends. So we're really proud of our digital organizing work. It's the broader mission of Pulso to use our content to lead folks to political action and to increase the political power of Latinos, which we already have the power in numbers. Now let's let's show that power by participating even more. That's amazing. Um, and speaking of which, you know, you're doing that through storytelling, through your podcast. So I want to know if there are any stories that have stood out to you more than others over the years, maybe one or two that you think could be fun to share. And we can push the link afterwards after the episode to tell people to go and listen. Oh, my gosh, there's so many stories. And I can tell you a couple of recent ones that have really resonated. So the first is that we shared a story about the fact that Sammy Davis Jr. was actually half Cuban. Um, and we didn't know that when we were researching and a lot of our audience members didn't know it either. So we love finding hidden hidden history about folks, especially connected to Latinidad. Uh, there's another story that's pinned to our um, Instagram feed, which I will pull it up now, which makes me cry almost every single time that I go back and read it, which is about the uh, artifacts left behind of folks who have had an immigration journey here uh, to the United States. And if you scroll on this story, you're going to see catequismos and rosaries, shoes and bags and it's just such a touching story that humanizes the the immigration experience. So I love that story as well. And a third story that is really just resonating so much. We've done so many versions of this and also just reshared a clip of this to our Instagram. It's uh, Rep Joaquin Castro. We interviewed him for the podcast sharing why he did not learn Spanish. So he has the opposite experience of mine. You know, his family has been here in the United States for generations. And when his grandparents came to the U.S., they were forbidden to speak Spanish. There were laws in Texas that didn't even let you speak the language. And that's why he doesn't speak Spanish. And he's trying to learn now because he finds value in it. And if you see the comments, there are literally hundreds of people saying, me too, that happened to me. 
and sometimes we make fun of no sabo kids right or sometimes we're uh, shunning other people within our own latino community who didn't have my experience of being fully uh, bilingual but we forget the history and we forget that yeah my family came here in the late 80s but in the early 1900s it wasn't like that in this country and it was really humbling to hear his experience and and the vulnerability with which he shared it is resonating with so many people in our audience. I would love to talk more about that question because I literally just watched a TikTok um, this morning about this woman in Latin America arguing that Latinos in the U.S. aren't real Latinos. And it was like this constant debate is always it's your own people that are also, you know, pushing that same rhetoric. And, you know, I think there's lots of layers to Latinidad. And I, I would love to hear your thoughts about that. Like how, how some people think, you know, if you don't speak Spanish and that's the only other thing that you didn't have. So if you had all the cultural stuff, you look Latino, physically look Latino, but you don't speak Spanish. How do we even, you know, address that question of Latinidad and the identity there? What do you say to that person that says you're not Latino enough? I say, learn your history. I say, learn your history. And um, it's so, it, it makes me so worked up because there's no one way to be Latino. We are Black and Indigenous. We are of mixed European background and we uh, have been here for generations and we maybe just came last month and are on a path to make this country our new home. And all of us are welcome under Latinidad. And so I often use the fact that, hey, Latinos didn't invent Latinidad. Latinidad was invented by the U.S. Census 50 years ago to create a term to put us under one uh, quote-unquote roof. But let's use that to our power because we do have much more in common than we don't. Um, and that solidarity and that empathy is something that I feel, no matter if it's with someone from Venezuela or Honduras or whatever la Latino country we, we hail from. And so I challenge the notion that you have to speak Spanish to be Latino. There's not one way to be Latino. And also don't have to have the passport of the country to feel that, like, that you are connected to that country because it's in your blood. Absolutely. Absolutely. I always say I'm Colombiana, pero de las falsas. Because <laughs> my parents, my entire family is Colombian, my mom and my dad. But I don't have the Colombian passport because I was born in the U.S. And it was almost like a striking moment for me when I went to Colombia for the first time in many, many years that I had to go, you know, as an adult. And I was waiting in line and someone was looking at me like, but you're not Colombian? Aren't you Colombian? Because they just looked at my face and they were like, but you're Colombian. Like, shouldn't you be in the other line? No, I'm in the foreigner line. <laughs> I'm American. And it hurt to say it. It hurt to say it. So I think that there's like a lot of feelings that we all have about that. And, you know, these personal experiences, they're all valid. And... I think it's also as media people, we have this kind of obligation to kind of show all of those nuances. And I'm really happy that we can share yours um, as well, you know, being Spanish Venezuelan, like that's not something that you hear a lot about. I do want to uh, close out one more thing on Pulso Podcast, um, you know, asking you about what the future of it is, because, you know, now you're here five years in. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your future plans? Yes. Yeah, so, so many fun plans across all of the Pulso outlets. You can expect to see it, more video content. We're experimenting on YouTube right now. We're experimenting with some new TikTok channels. So 
anywhere where there's a short form video content, we hope that you see a history, culture, and commentary that you won't find anywhere else beyond Pulso. And the podcast, we're in kind of a revamp mode right now. We're about to launch season five in early 2024. And we're going to move to uh, having an episode every week. Right now, we're sharing an episode every other week. So we're really excited to share more content. Um, and we hope to just have more conversations that touch on on this feeling of wanting to be seen. I think that that's uh, something that we really uh, reckoned with when we were looking at all of our previous episodes and the ones where we've gotten the most feedback and uh, where we've seen people share. Tell me more is where we're on the podcast itself talking about what it is to live in between, live in the hyphen, live between two worlds. And what are those unique challenges to Latinidad that we face as we continue to make a life here, but want to keep our connections with uh, our parents and our home countries as well. So more of that, more vulnerability, more conversations, uh, weekly episodes, and more Pulso history, culture, commentary on all other platforms too. That's amazing. So we're going to end this with a speed round of questions that we ask every Miha. So you just have to answer as quickly as you can, okay? Okay. All right. What language do you swear in when you accidentally touch a hot plate? Spanish. What's your favorite food? Arepas, of course. The Venezuelan way. La arepa es venezolana, mija. <laughs> that's debatable. That's debatable. We're not going to get into it. <laughs> um, bueno, uh, what's your last Google search that you are comfortable sharing? Uh, Halloween costumes for toddlers. Nice. What is your most embarrassing dream? And not uh, embarrassing dream in the sense of <laughs> like an actual sleeping dream more like more like the dream that you had when you were a kid and you were like i would be an astronaut or you know a baker or whatever oh my gosh i love to sing and so i've always dreamed of like getting a standing ovation for some like badass karaoke moment <laughs> maybe it'll still happen it sounds real like you can do that i think you can accomplish that dream um all right and what is a song you've had in your head this week my daughter is a year and four months, and so it's all the jingles I sing her. So, limpia, limpia, todo el mundo organizar, limpia, limpia, la casita hay que ordenar. That's the Barney song in Spanish, for those of you who don't know, the OG Barney fans. Love Barney. Oh my gosh, so thank you so much, that's it. Tell us where we can find you, where we can follow you. Uh, for all of the behind the scenes of this media world, you can follow me on Instagram at Liz Rebe Alarcón. And uh, for anything Pulso, please follow us at Project Pulso on TikTok, Instagram, on Facebook, at the Pulso Podcast, wherever you listen. And keep up with our history culture commentary that, again, you hopefully won't find anywhere else. And one last thought for all of our daughters of immigrants, other mijas out there. What's your advice to these women who are scared to take the leap and start, you know, communicating their stories? What's your number one tip? Start with uh, something small that you do and create for yourself. Sit with yourself one afternoon and take your phone and, and record a bit of your story or start to write bits and pieces of it and as you start to do that, you'll start to to craft the things that you feel are important to share. And sometimes even creating it for ourselves is the biggest challenge. I know everyone always says start, but I guess my advice is start for yourself first 
And then from there, uh, hopefully the story will come because we need to hear all of your stories and they matter. Amazing. Thank you so much, Liz. Thank you. It was such a pleasure to join you all. Thanks for listening. This is Miha on the Mic, a season of reflection on our shared experiences as daughters of immigrants. Over the next couple of weeks, I'll be sharing stories like these and inviting guests to share theirs. Follow us on Instagram at Miha Podcast, that's M-I-J-A Podcast, and leave us a note if you like this story. Tune in every Wednesday for a new episode. This is a production of Studio Ochenta, a Latina-owned multilingual podcast studio dedicated to raising voices across cultures. For more from Studio Ochenta, follow us at Ochenta Podcasts on Instagram. That's O-C-H-E-N-T-A podcast with an S on Instagram. P.S. Don't forget this season is also about you. If you have a story you'd like to share or if you'd like to be a guest on the show, I invite you to reach out on Instagram at Miha Podcast and leave us a message with a short story or memory of yours that warms your heart. We'll read it out loud on the show. Hasta pronto. Ciao. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Did you know that Mija has her own audiobook with exclusive and brand new material? It's called Mija Podcast, the audiobook, an exclusive and never-before-heard collection of memoirs and reflections by her creator, Lori Martinez, about what it meant to turn her own migration story into a fiction series. When you get Ochenta's audiobooks, you're directly supporting our independent audio series productions. You can find it on Libro.fm, Apple Books, Google Play, Storytel, BookBeat, and on your favorite audiobooks app. Also available in Spanish and French.